All right, good morning and welcome back to the Weekend Debrief. It is Thursday, September 24th. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Ted Baker. Ted, welcome back. We are Always here. good to be here. Yes, uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, first, I want to get into some of the uh, most interesting COVID headlines. We've been talking a lot about COVID for the last two, three months on the show, and I, for one, am starting to get a little tired of it. Um, so we're going to start switching things up a little bit. We are going to hit the COVID topics first, get them out of the way, and then talk about some of the other stuff that has been or is going on um, in the region. Uh, first things first, and I'm going to add a second story into this number one topic here. Uh, officials in Cuga County voiced concerns earlier this week that they don't have enough COVID tests. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, they're asking for, so leadership in Cuga County is asking for uh, the state to step in and create some some locally run uh, testing facilities. Now, we also got a notification and a press release from Senator Helming's office, uh, I want to say Tuesday or Wednesday, calling for the state to basically take over all testing efforts if they are going to continue to have these restrictions on nursing homes and nursing home visitation. Interesting stuff because it seems like now we're starting to get more unity uh, in the call for better, more widespread testing across the board. And it, it's fascinating to me that it's taken this long because it seems like now we're at a point where if you if you talk to folks just out in the community, most people feel like everything's under control and everything is good. But, and I should say, despite the fact that we are still seeing very low case numbers, whether it be in schools, whether it be at colleges, whether it be in, in just municipalities. Um, we're still seeing low numbers, but despite that, there's still a need for more testing. And it's interesting because even though you don't have a ton of active virus right now, we're heading into a time of year where I think a lot of people would probably feel a little more comfortable if there were more testing or better access to free testing uh, what are your thoughts on this so far as you've been watching this play out? It's, it's felt very slow to come to, to come to fruition. Well, I think one thing people are looking for is some consistency. I mean, all through this, you know, how long's the turnaround time? For some people, it was almost immediate. For others, it's two weeks. You can get testing here. You can't get testing there. You pay for it here. You don't pay for it there. I have a coworker with a relative in a nursing home in Seneca County, and it's 94 bucks to get a test. Mm -hmm. And then this particular nursing home only has certain windows for visitation. You can take a test, get your negative result for 94 bucks, and then be told that window's all full, next visitation window's next week, now you have to go get another test for another $94. Uh, and that, I know that was the big thrust behind what Senator Helming was saying, is that if we're going to continue to have these restrictions, people shouldn't have to pay that much money out of their pockets for the right to go see a relative in a nursing home. Well, and on top of that, too, I, I think that there should be a better spread of testing, free testing sites. Because I know, like in Syracuse and around some of the college campuses, Syracuse, Binghamton, there's a couple in Rochester, there are free testing sites around and I, I noticed that some counties have been doing sort of these sporadic, every so often they'll do a drive-through testing clinic kind of thing um, where it's free for, you know, residents and things like that. But, you know, I also, I have a friend who, who recently, uh, because of his job, 
uh, he's a teacher, the district before the, the teachers went back required a test, a negative test, but uh, they needed it in such a window that the person wound up having to drive about 40 minutes to get a test that would turn around in the right amount of time. And the school district did nothing in that situation. Uh, this is outside the Finger Lakes now, but it is in New York State, and I think it's reflective of the, the broader issue here. The, the district did nothing to compensate or to make a process that made sense for the, the, the teacher in that situation. And that, to me, is the part that doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense still. Um, I'm curious. I don't know if with flu season coming into uh, view now, that maybe the state will push more towards uh, better testing opportunities? Because obviously, I, I think even if you are the most optimistic about the virus, uh, we're probably going to see more cases in the coming months than we have, say, between June and present day. Just just assuming if it's following normal virus, you know, we've got students in school, we've got, you know, cases starting, and people will be, weather's great right now, but it won't be in a couple weeks, so... You know those factors. I would assume are going to play into it. And it would seem like it'd be in the best interest of the state to get on get on board and get something, some sort of plan figured out. Well, and it also sounds we talk a lot over the months about the urban versus rural divide, and it sounds like that's where we are with testing. If you live in Rochester or Syracuse, you can probably find a free test fairly conveniently nearby. If you live in the rural Finger Lakes, not so much. Yeah, and that you know it's interesting because. Uh, the second story I wanted to talk about today was, uh, and it's interesting, you and I have been having this conversation about schools now for about three, maybe going on four weeks now, um, and we've seen different scenarios play out. Some schools have gone back fully uh, five days a week, some schools not. Uh, this week, uh, we saw the dance that the Clyde Savannah Central School District had to play, uh, so they announced two last-minute closures then switched to remote learning on Wednesday for the period or duration of one week. Uh, turns out a non-instructional staff member who works in the transportation department tested positive. There was mixed messaging on this front. But I am i can't possibly see how this is a sustainable process. Where a district goes last minute night before, we're not going to have school tomorrow. We're not going to have school tomorrow. So that, that's what happened on Sunday and Monday. And then on Tuesday night, they say, for the next seven days, we're going to remote instruction, effective immediately. Bye. Like, that just isn't a sustainable... Districts aren't going to be able to do that all year and get away with it. I mean, parents, you know, I've already been hearing from parents over the first two to three weeks where there are, are, there are people who sent their kids in good faith to school, whether it be part-time or full-time, believing that it was going to be the better option. And what some of them are telling me is that it's so chaotic. It's so, there's so much uncertainty attached to it. They wish they just went with the remote option because there's at least certainty connected to that. You're not going to be told the night before that your son or daughter can't go to school the next day. It's inconvenient. It is a. It is more of an inconvenience, and I think there is some privilege attached. Privilege attached to who can even pull that off, because not everyone can afford the childcare. Not everyone can can create the scenario where their kid can stay home. 
Um, but it's, it's an interesting, to me, it's an interesting balance. And then last night we saw the Lions uh, School District uh, say that they had a, a teacher, an instructional staff member, uh, test positive in the elementary school, but kids are to report to school the next day. This, to me, that is just this haphazard district by district approach is just not sustainable. Well, it was haphazard in the going back to school. Every district was left on their own, which is, is I think, one of the criticisms of Governor Cuomo's handling of all this is that in in some instances he really is is very strict about things, and then in others he says it's all up to you, you know, and he leaves it up to the school districts. So they're all trying to read the tea leaves and figure out which way to go. But then, like you say, the different responses. We get one response from Clyde Savannah. We get another response from Lyons. We get another response from Auburn. And for what it's worth, uh, we had a story up on our website uh, a week or so ago just about some of these subjects. And uh, a commenter claimed, and I have no way to, to verify this, but claimed that there was one particular school in the Finger Lakes where there was a case and almost nobody was notified. They wouldn't say who it was. And and the commenter was essentially saying that, that between that and the lag in data on the state dashboard that we just really don't know. Mm-hmm. That we don't know who's getting it. We don't know who they've been in contact with. We don't know how thoroughly the schools are contact tracing. Yeah, so to that end, it's interesting you say that because uh, this point was brought up yesterday in the case of the uh, Clyde Savannah District. Uh, a a member of the transportation team, so uh, you could assume that's a bus driver or someone who's working on a bus, um, tested positive. Uh, BOCI students in the Wayne Finger Lakes BOCES uh, area are all going normal, effectively a normal normal schedule. They're being transported from all the districts in the Wayne Finger Lakes area that served. So you're talking Seneca, Ontario, and Wayne counties. I don't know if Yates County is part of that or not, but just assuming that it's those three counties alone, and you have a member of the transportation team in one district test positive. Now, Contact tracing was clearly a challenge. If you just go by the statements that the district, that the Clyde Savannah district made themselves, contact tracing was clearly a challenge. Now, is that because this person had contact with folks from other districts or students from other districts? Is it not? This may not have happened. That situation that I'm describing may not have played out in this time. But to say that it will never play out that way, or it could never play out that way, when you do have this uh, effectively multi-district district formed through BOCES and the students going there as, as part or as a regular schedule, you could very easily have cross-contamination between districts. And it could be very difficult to trace. Well, you can only be so exact anyway. I was thinking of this yesterday. Suppose... You know, suppose I took a test a few days ago and it comes back today and I found out it's positive. I was in Wegmans yesterday. Yeah. I don't know who I was in contact with. They don't know. How, how do you know when I was in that store whether customer X was standing right next to me or was 100 feet away on the other side of the store? So there's only uh, contact tracing is a tool, but I, I think part of it is we, we want this certainty that's never going to be there. 
you can only do so much. And I mean, you know, we have privacy laws, so they don't want to name names. So yeah, when they say a member of the transportation, you know, was that a bus driver? Was it a mechanic who works on buses but doesn't actually ever get on one? I mean, it's different. You know, no two cases are alike. So I guess, you know, the school response can't be uniform for every case. It depends. Is it a teacher? Is it a bus driver? Is it somebody in the lunchroom? Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm not really sure that there's, I've seen anything. And, you know, this to me uh, falls into the category of of bad regional planning. And I don't say that to, to throw stones at any of our regional planners or uh anything of the like there. I think they're doing the best they can in unusual circumstances. But the state has to have a better approach for this. And I think going back to what you said early on in our conversation, if the state were more direct and more specific about how counties and how regions and how districts are supposed to uh, respond to this, you know, if you want to know how many cases of the coronavirus there are in, in any given region, area, I'll say outside of one specific municipality or or entity, you have to check like four different dashboards. It's insane. If you want to know how many cases of the coronavirus there are in Geneva, as an example, you have to check the the state's dashboard or should check the state's dashboard for public schools. You've got to check the Hobart and William Smith uh, College's dashboard because they have their own private dashboard. Then you probably at some point have to cross-reference that with the Ontario County uh, daily tracking or weekly tracking, whatever you choose to, to subscribe to. And you have to like decipher all this information, which in theory should just be in one place. And that's just one example. But if you live in the town of Geneva and you commute to say, I don't know, Canandaigua or Victor or Rochester for work, and you want to know what you're potentially being exposed to in all of those communities, you've got to check like six or seven different different dashboards. Whose data totally may unreasonable. be one day old or eight days old. I, I checked this morning yeah. the, the school dashboard for Geneva City Schools were showing data from September 16th, eight days ago. Which is With a another... disease that has an, about an 11-day or so incubation period. So... That's as close to useless information as you can get because by the time that catches up, anyone who had the disease is going to have spread it to other people for a week or better. Right, and it, it's a it's a huge red flag and obviously a, a bigger problem, I think, in communities where there is both a high number of cases or a higher number of cases and a lot of different large institutional players involved in the mix. Does a community like Seneca County have a problem on this front? Not so much because you've got your four school districts and you've got the county. And effectively, all of the information is going through the county. And the county has been doing, to their credit, a good job of getting timely information out. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I see tweets of updates every single day from Seneca County Public Health. So, you know, kudos to, to places like that that can pull it off. But well, it's challenging. I mean, it's and just also, I, I, I've heard just recently another anecdotal story that one of the area colleges was cited by the state for not being up to date in its reporting. And they said, we've been trying to, but we can't report to your website because it won't let us repeatedly. Yeah. And, you know, another another potential pitfall here is you've got all these different just in the last three days 
we've seen uh, a, a, a fast, a rapid test approved and developed out of Syracuse, uh, gone through the FDA. We've seen another one in, I want to say, Rochester that was that was moved through URMC. Uh, we've got six-hour tests, 15-minute tests, five-minute tests, saliva tests, uh, nasal swab tests. We've got tests that take three days to return. We've got tests that take a week to return. We've got uh, tests with uh, effective rates of you know under 50%. We've got tests with effective uh, f- efficacy rates of you know, more than 80 and 90%. You've got this wide dispersion of different, uh, of, of different processes. And it's just impossible when you have all of these different entities, not only reporting data to different places, but also using their own methods for collect for data collection in the first place. It's just, it is a re- a true recipe for disaster. It's, it's, it is exactly that. Um, so Third interesting story on the COVID front this week. Uh, whose responsibility is what was my takeaway in this one? Uh, several stores were cited this week by the Cuga County Board of Health, uh, reported by the, the Auburn Citizen, Family Dollar, Maxwell's, and Wegmans, uh, and a couple other uh, stores to a gas station in Auburn, uh, all paid $50 fines for not complying with the state's uh, intense and, in, uh, in some cases, over-the-top restrictions on, on businesses. Uh, however, the int- the most interesting facet of this story to me was they all paid the fine. Four of them signed consent orders saying that, you know, basically agreeing with the assessment. We screwed up. We won't screw up again. We're sorry. Take our $50. Wegmans was cited. And instead of signing the consent order, they paid the fine. But an attorney for the company said, customers in their stores are not their responsibility. Now, when you go to Wegmans, just like when you go to Target or Walmart or Tops or anywhere else, there's signs around. Wear a mask. But plenty of times, I've been in, in all of those stores, and you see people wearing the mask, the mask down, wearing it around their chin, or maybe just when they're not right next to somebody have, having it pulled down. It's interesting. What do you make of, of Wegman's position, which I think is, is one that was already partly uh, debated at the start of the pandemic when the, the masking mandate went into effect in, in New York State, but it's since become kind of just a little bit of background chatter because most people in most places are just wearing the mask without doing a lot of griping along the way. Well, I think the first thing is the fact that the fine is $50 tells you that nobody's really taking this very seriously. I mean, come on, 50 bucks. You're finding yep. Wegmans 50. I think they can probably come up with that. On the other hand, I agree with their position 100%. I, I, I fully agree with what they say. I don't think it is their responsibility. It's, it's unrealistic to expect somebody who operates a store or Walmart that's, you know, how many thousand square feet and, you know, who's responsible? The store manager, the store owner, the store assistant manager. You can't, if, if, if you're going to make people wear masks, then find the people. Walk around and find people in the stores who aren't wearing masks. I, I don't think finding the company 
number one, does any good, and number two, is particularly fair. I, don't, I just don't see how you can expect people to police that realistically. Yeah, I think that it's tough because in principle, you know, if the store has a policy, and maybe this is, maybe here's where my issue is. Maybe the stores just shouldn't have a policy if they can't enforce it or if there isn't a real will to enforce it. Because I think the how is the harder part than, you know, anything else in that equation. Well, I think they, I think they have policies. Remember, Wegmans initially was reluctant to go along with any of this stuff at all. I think mm-hmm. if it were up to Wegmans, they'd tell their customers, do whatever you want. I, I, I don't think anybody wants their retail store to resemble a hospital ward. But when the state steps in and says, you must do this, then any responsible business is going to say, well, okay. And, and then there's the whole, you know, there's the legal consideration. I, I mean, I, I haven't heard of it a lot yet, but at some point there are going to be lawsuits flying I think that's back to the schools. A lot of the reasons the schools are trying to do what they're trying to do is because no school wants to be the first one to have a student or a teacher die of COVID and have a dozen parents come in with a law firm behind them and start suing the district. Yeah, I just don't, I I don't really understand how, and obviously we see what the economic picture looks like for, you know, the businesses in general. Um, but using, you know, grocery stores as an example, you know, maybe some of them are in a position to be able to have extra staff to sort of serve as like watchdogs for the individual stores. But a vast majority of stores don't have the manpower or the, the but even if money you do, to, to so I'm the mask police and I see you and I say, put your mask on. Oh, I'm sorry. You pull it up. You walk around the corner of the next aisle and you pull it back down again. Right. I, I mean, Sometimes there, I think there needs to be somebody in charge of reality to say, okay, this is a great theory, but does it work in practice? In practice, you cannot force everyone to correctly wear a mask all the time everywhere they go. It's just not practical and not doable. Yeah, and, and you know, just to, something to, you know, put this topic to, to rest here, um, I, I think it's... I agree the fine is is kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Most counties have adopted like a $50 fine threshold for that first offense. Um, they increase as offenses are repeated. Um, but, you know, we, we got probably about a dozen emails after that, after uh, we wrote a story about this topic uh, two days ago, um, within a few hours of folks saying, you know, I was at this place and I saw so and so and so and so with without a mask, and it's just I don't know that it's something that you can ever really put the full weight of law behind. And can you ask people to wear a mask? Yes, and I feel like you know maybe creating a mandate at the state level was viewed as the best way to get compliance most quickly. And then any time that you put in a mandate or a law that you can't enforce and everyone knows you can't enforce it, it reduces respect for the rest of the laws. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's why you have to be careful. If, if, if you put in laws that you can't enforce, then generally you get general disrespect for all the law because if I don't have to obey this one, then why do I have to obey this one? Mm-hmm. 
All right, so uh, let's talk about some non, uh, non-COVID related stuff. It is budget season. I know uh, you guys have talked with at the radio station, you guys have talked with uh, NISAC a few times. Um, and this week I caught up with uh, Newark Mayor Jonathan Taylor. Last week caught up with Yates Administrator uh, Noni Flynn, talking about some of the processes that we've been seeing play out and how some of these municipalities have approached budget season. Um, a couple big takeaways for me uh, were one the the again the wide range of of responses and two <coughs> excuse me the long term planning that a lot of these communities that really uh, appear to have it together have been executing. You know, uh, Newark has been credited for the last several years uh, with being. Uh, among other things, DRI finalist, but also with just being very good at long-term planning and sticking to those plans no matter what. Um, but I was also really impressed with uh, my conversation with Administrator Flynn because so much of what has put Yates County in the position that it is in, which is basically no impact to the taxpayer in 2021, despite the fact that there's a good chance that 20% is going to be pulled off the top by by uh, Governor Cuomo in New York State because of its own budget crisis. You know, long-term planning dating back for them to March and April has paid off. And they are going to be in a good place because of it. And that to me, you know, if there's anything that sticks out like a sore thumb, it's that compared to other counties and other municipalities which are taking very different approaches um, and much less proactive approaches to budgeting what have you what have you been hearing and what have you been sort of taking from those conversations with uh supervisor marin and some of the others who've who've been chatting with you it sounds to me i mean some entities have taken the approach that economic activity is going to be depressed for the rest of 2020 and probably a good portion of 2021 i mean we all hear the vaccine conversations the most likely scenario consensus seems to be that there won't be widespread vaccine until sometime, maybe this time next year. So to me, it's easier to budget from a position that things are going to be pretty tight and then you can loosen up if need be, where other entities, I think, have taken the approach that the state or the federal government or somebody is going to make it all good with a pot of money, so let's just go on as if nothing were really different. I I think that's kind of the two extremes of approaches that we see. And I think if you take that proactive approach and say, you know, let's make whatever cuts we need to make right now, and hey, if things get better, we'll bring you back. We'll we'll rehire people. Yeah, and, and, you know, I know, so this week I, I wrote a column about this topic and about the different approaches that we've seen different counties take. Um, and there, there was some criticism, and I'm not going to name names right at this point. I want to sort of uh, talk with some more people about reasons why and things like that. But um, I know there was some pushback and some blowback in, in some communities over the, the assertion that communities that aren't talking enough about budgeting publicly are not doing right by their by their constituents or by their taxpayers. And I would just like to double down on that and say that if you are in a community or if you are a member of a board or if you are a, a an official in a a town, a village, a county, 
that has not had plenty of conversation, open conversation. And I don't mean in September. I mean in June, July, August, about what 2021 was going to look like uh, for the record to be able to examine in the future. Uh, you were not operating in, in frankly, I, I don't think you were operating in good faith to the, to the taxpayers you're, you're voted to, to serve. Um, that's a personal opinion. Um, but in my mind, this is going to really play out. Uh, you know, we can we can go back and and as the kids would say now, uh, we'll have the receipts. And you know, next year when one county has to institute a, a tax levy increase, and another county doesn't, or maybe it doesn't happen next year. Maybe it happens in 2022. Maybe in 2021 we're going to see a lot of counties tap into their reserves to try and to try and cover it up. But eventually maybe it's 2022, these counties, these towns, these villages are going to have to deal with a deficit. Are you going to deal with the deficit today? Or are you going to deal with it two years from now? Or are you not going to deal with it now because you know you won't be here in two years? That's my, my takeaway from when I watch, and this, this crisis really isn't any different than we've seen counties go through in the past or towns go through in the past for a whole range of reasons. A, a perfect example would be the way Seneca Falls in some ways has approached the Seneca Meadows debate. Do you plan for losing your host agreement money now, four years, five years, six years before the landfill is actually forced to close if, if that local law is held up through that period? Or you know, do you wait until it's actually happening or it's more imminent and plan then. I think the way taxpayers look at it afterward or will reflect on it will be much harder on the elected officials that waited until the last minute than those who planned proactively way ahead of time and and gave everyone a little bit of time to digest. Because who knows, maybe if if you put it out there now that there's going to be a, a big cut or a big... Uh, increase necessary, tax levy increase necessary in the next two years, maybe you start to get people thinking outside the box. Maybe you start to get taxpayers and you start to get the community and you get the supervisors or you get the legislators or the town board members thinking outside the box and thinking about potential solutions. And, you know, when the state says we're going to be cutting 20% of what you get from us, whether it be aid or reimbursements, um, it's not pretend. It's not imaginary. That's real money. I mean, if you're a if if you're a, a county like Yates, I mean, Noni Flynn was was very specific. She said it's for them about two point seven to three million dollars. They can absorb that in the short term, but they've also been having a conversation in Yates County since April. April. Imagine how much uncertainty there was in April. We didn't know it was twenty percent. We didn't even we didn't even have the the faintest clue right. what the number was. But they started that conversation in the spring, and now we're in the fall, and the budgets are budgets for counties and, and municipalities are due in you know, a month and a half, and they have a viable plan for 2021. You know, communities that haven't had a conversation, a real conversation, a real public workshop, a real anything yet, you can schedule anything you want in October. You can schedule anything you want over the next 45 days. None of it's going to make a difference. The, the the deed has been done. So 
that's that's where I I stand on that at this point. And I just I I hope for people who pay taxes in communities that are really susceptible um, to uh, or would be harder hit by a tax increase. So your really small villages where the numbers aren't as big and gaudy, but the the implications for the person who lives in that village and relies on the services in those small communities. Um, I hope for their sake that it does work out and there is some sort of uh, lessening of the blow that's coming in the next two years. Yeah, I mean, which scenario do you want to be in? Do you want to put sandbags around your house and not have a flood come? Or do you want to wait until there's a flood and say, anyone know where I can get sandbags? But it, it also goes back to, every, it seems like everything we talk about in the short term goes back to one of our long-term ongoing themes, and that's openness in government. There's a bias, I believe, in government toward secrecy and not being open. So it's a real leap for some boards, I think, to bring the public in and say, look, this is where we're going to be. We need your input. We need to have a plan. Hopefully things get better and we don't have to implement it, but we don't want to wait until there's no money left and we have to take a big chunk out of everybody. Yeah, and it's one of those things. And you live you live in a village yourself, correct? In Yates County. Yeah, and... and it- what? How do you feel that it is being, when you look at, at the world you're living in, how do you feel like it's being handled as opposed to what you're seeing in other places? Do you feel like it's being handled proactively? Truth be told, I couldn't even tell you. Honestly, yeah. I don't I don't pay that much attention. I'm busy with, you know, all the, yeah. you know. And it's wild because that's another. Trump versus Biden and everything else. I don't, I don't, and that's, I mean, maybe that's illustrative that here I am in the news business and I don't pay that much attention, and my wife is an employee of the village, and I don't pay that much attention to how they're handling things. Or, or I'm really not even aware what the implications are. I know that as far as our school district goes, we've had declining population that's going to lead to financial pressures no matter what, yeah. and then add to that COVID. Um, so it, it's a good question. I guess I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not being a very informed citizen. But in that's, you know, I I think to some degree that's a pretty good reflection of what a lot of communities and what a lot of uh, the citizenry in a lot of communities consists of. And that's not a a knock on anybody. But, you know, it just goes to the point that municipalities really do have to do a better job of getting that information out to people. You know, the number of – I will say this. Since the start of the pandemic and communities going to board meetings that are either – streamed or you know uploaded at least via zoom after they're after they're done has been has caused a huge boost in who's paying attention to local politics to these things so i think if there's any positive to be taken from the whole thing it's that you know this the fact that you know places like seneca county are streaming all their meetings the fact that you've got you know the same thing happening in in counties like wayne and you know it's it's movement in the right direction, but well, it I don't removes think it's one enough more yet. barrier. You don't have to get in your car and drive down to the village board meeting when you can go on it on Zoom. I think when you make it easier, then it, you know it's like all the discussion about mail voting. I think if you make voting easier, more people will vote. If you make it easier to keep track of what your government's doing, more people will do it. So one more uh, Seneca County topic this week: uh, committee meetings were held on Tuesday. Uh, government ops uh, heard a presentation and and threw questions at 
uh, Sarah Davis, executive director of the IDA. She took over that post from Bob Aronson, who held it previously earlier this year. Um, it was over the sale of the former Hillside campus. It sold for $65,000 to Earl Martin, who owns a lion's share of the former Seneca Army Depot, which the Hillside campus is sort of indirectly, directly connected to. Um, but the numbers that came out afterward and some of the questions that were raised after that meeting, I think, were really interesting and, and warrant some examination um, at, at all levels. First and foremost, uh, the committee ultimately decided against sending a letter to uh, the state to potentially hold up the sale or cancel the sale. The sale is for $65,000. The IDA has already gotten their money up front and a lease agreement has been uh, put together to get the IDA between its ownership and the actual closing of the sale. So from the day the handshake happened to the day when closing happens, which is expected to be later this year. However, these numbers that I talked about. So uh, a third party came in for the IDA and uh, appraised the property and put it at $350,000 as far as valuation is concerned. Uh, that is significantly larger than the $65,000 price tag that it sold for. And a lot of residents and, and community members who were reaching out to uh, members of the board, which prompted this entire discussion and debating committee this week, uh, was effectively that the IDA didn't do a good enough job of promoting the potential sale or the RFP for this property. It's a 172-acre property, several buildings, a lot of work obviously would need to be done. Um, it's not entirely clear what Martin's plan is for it. It looks like it's going to be uh, to expand some of the, the Deerhaven Park stuff that's that's going on down there. Um, but then, third number here, you throw in the assessment of the property, the previous assessment of the property, which was $3.8 million, and that $65,000 price tag doesn't just look like a good deal. It looks like a fire sale. And it's interesting to me because, and we were cited in uh, Sarah Davis's uh, report to the committee that the request for proposals was published by us, by Finger Lakes Daily News. Uh, you guys talked about it on the radio. I remember listening that day in June. Uh, and of course, the Finger Lakes Times. Now, that part of it is interesting to me because the question that, that came to mind after that was, did it go to all media? So did it go to all possible relevant media? And the turnaround time between the day that it was actually published, which was around June 10th, uh, and when window tours were offered to prospective buyers, which was June 25th, was it an adequate amount of time for other media outlets outside the area to actually uh, connect with it, follow up, and potentially do a story on it? And this was the thing that, that kind of got me me thinking because I'm friends with plenty of people who work in, in Rochester media and, uh, you know, we will often run a, run a story on a press release or an announcement or something like that, uh, this week. And then a week or two down the line, we will see, you know, our, our friends at WHEC or, you know, channel 13 or whatever the case may be run the same, the same story. Like they just got to it because right. the, the volume of what they're seeing 
from the the Rochester Metro itself is so much higher, and and some of the ancillary stuff tends to fall through the cracks right. or can fall through the cracks. It's interesting to me because I I don't know that after really thinking about it, I don't know that three weeks or roughly three weeks or twenty days was enough turnaround time between the the initial announcement of an RFP and those window tours. I think that is a that if if part of this process is going to be examined beyond the price and the final the final bid that was accepted. Um, that to me seems like the thing that stands out. But the question I wanted to throw at you, um, and you can speak to any of that, but the distrust that people, taxpayers tend to have with IDAs, is are we nearing a point where we need a better system than the traditional industrial development agency process for generating new business and getting uh, businesses growing in specific communities? I think we probably need a better process. To go back to the price, if only one person is interested in buying something, then it's worth whatever he says it is. You know, if you have something you want to sell me for 100 bucks, and I say I'll give you 5 and no one else on earth's expressed interest, you can sell it to me for 5 or you can sit on it. Now, I know the county said that they were, they'd already incurred, I think it was 98000 in expenses and upkeep. So, uh, I, and I, I might be wrong on that figure, but I think that's what I read. Yep. Was so, so they have costs. The longer they hold on to this property, the more it's going to cost them. Now, having said that, uh, people sell their $150,000 home, and it might be on the market for nine months before it sells. So trying to do this whole process in a matter of a couple of weeks seems like not very much. And frankly... You know, I'm no expert on marketing properties, but I think you've got to go beyond putting legal notices in the local papers and the local websites. I, I would think, I mean, can you not hire a realtor or hire someone who specializes in selling that kind of property? I, for, I mean, I would think <laughs> that its most likely use would be for some other sort of similar residential treatment facility maybe for a private school, something like that. You've got these residential and institutional buildings on the property. You know, how much was done beyond the legal minimum that you have to do? You have to, you know, how many people, even people who buy properties, does everybody go to the Sunday paper and go to page 38 and look for those little one-point legal announcements down in the corner? I mean, so I guess the question is, is there a better way to market a property like this nationally and you know maybe there's somebody in you know California that says hey this is perfect I'm, I want to start a private school well so to that end um, it, it's worth noting that uh, Davis did say that there was a second interested party but their timeline did not fit or mesh with uh, with the IDA's timeline and that because of the expense that you mentioned, and $98,000 was the figure that, that okay. she threw out there, um, because of those, those factors, it, it wasn't a viable, you know, a viable process. Now, right, now, and you're going to come in, if you're the IDA, you're going to come in for heavy criticism if you're sitting on this property month after month after month and paying to maintain it. Then you're going to have people say, well, just sell the damn thing. So they're kind of in a little bit in between a rock and a hard place there. They don't want to keep paying this maintenance. They want to get rid of it, but no one's expressing interest. So I, I, I think the, the, the primary question is what 
processes are they using to market properties like this? I, I mean, I would think you would want, you know, if, if, a, if a school district's looking for a superintendent, they'll say, we're going to do a national search. Well, I think you should do more than marketing the property in a 25-mile circle around the Finger Lakes. And yeah. maybe they have. I, if they have, you know. Well, and I mean, to some degree, you've got to get an expert in there, right? Like, you've got to get somebody who has real experience in, in right. that Right. Again, field. yeah, exactly. If, if I'm selling a property worth $3 million, I'm not just going to put an ad in the paper one week and hope I get hits on it. You, you've got to, you know, find somebody, hopefully, who's a good fit for that property. Yeah, and I think the other part of this, too, is that they kind of hurt themselves on... Um, I think they hurt themselves on the the post sale appearance. Looking back, when you you examine a, a window tour, you know, being stuck in your car driving around a 172 acre property isn't exactly the assessment that you, as a prospective buyer, probably wants to have. Of right. A, I mean, I want to know what kind like of shape this. those buildings are in inside. Yeah. Are there leaks in the roof? Are the floors good? I mean, I, you know, I, I want to you know You just want to get out and feel it. You right. want to experience sure. it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not really sure. And, you know, I think some of the crit- criticism that the IDA is dealing with now is realistically just a, a result of people not feeling that great about pilot agreements in general, because that is that tends to be where the the center of the criticism lies with any IDA, whether you're talking about Seneca County or any other county. Um, taxpayers don't like pilots because they feel like they're giving corporations and businesses an unfair advantage that they don't deserve. Plain and simple. Right. I mean, Mr. Martin is a wealthy man, and now he's picked up a piece of property that might be worth $3.5 million dollars, and, and they're going to look really bad if he turns around and sells it to somebody for $3 million six months down the road by doing the due diligence that they may not have done themselves in marketing the property. And, and you, I mean, you just have to wonder. I mean, sixty. when I heard that number, 65000 I mean, half of one of the buildings is worth more than that. I mean, that just... It doesn't seem like real hard negotiation. But then again, as I said, if if Mr. Martin's the only person interested, then he's in the driver's seat. Yeah, and, and earlier this week, um, speaking of, of entities or companies that are in the driver's seat, let's talk about Greenwich. Uh, Greenwich Generation down in Dresden in Yates County. Um, residents in the area are calling for the DEC to either modify or revoke the operating permit uh, for Greenwich Generation along Seneca Lake. The main concern, uh, the company's plan to continue expanding its Bitcoin mining operation. Tons of environmental concerns associated with this effort down there. The heat that's being generated and thereby pushed into Seneca Lake. There's also some, there's an uh, ash landfill down there that hasn't really been uh, correctly dealt with, at least according to those advocates. Um, and it's interesting from my perspective, when I read the story, and you know, we've been seeing these stories about Greenwich now for over eight months, um, residents are asking the DEC to do something that it doesn't typically do, right? We don't see the DEC very often get involved in large corporate action beyond permitting, beyond initial permitting, I should say. Um, while I think it's it's unusual and, and pretty interesting, I suppose, from an advocacy standpoint for a group of people to call for 
a business that's been there for you know 100 years to have its operating permit revoked or modified, I don't really see that as realistic or reasonable. And I certainly don't think the DEC is going to step up and do this. What, what, what's, your, what's your take on this after you read the story? Well, I agree with that. I, I think the bigger question is what was in the permit to begin with and how was it allowed to get there? I mean, I, did, did somebody really allow a business a permit that allows them to pour hot water into Seneca Lake and raise the temperature? I mean, you're telling me there's anecdotal stories that, you know, it feels like a hot tub in there. When you, I mean, that goes back to our whole open government thing. I mean, how many of these permitting processes just sort of slide through, or especially back in the day, were allowed to slide through? I mean, it's we got to be really careful about what we let people do on the shore of a lake. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think uh, there's probably a lot of uh, grandfathering in that's happening here with, with some of these businesses that are old and they've been around a long time. And a lot of people, you know, they're big employers in any given place. You know, I think some of those factors probably weigh into the what some people feel like should be a black or white very clear you've got this and this here are the concerns here are the pros and make a decision based on the merits and nothing else also by the way i you know i i'd be curious how many people think that bitcoin mining actually involves some sort of mining i'm, I'm wondering if that becomes an issue in there as well i, I mean i've had a, I, i've had bitcoin explained to me a dozen <laughs> times now and i still don't understand much of what it is. It, it involves computing power. And so what they're really doing is they're generating big amounts of electricity and yeah. discharging hot water. So they're not, just to clarify, because I'll bet right, you, of course, yeah. 25 or 30% of the people or more listening to this are thinking they're drilling holes in the ground to pull up bitcoins or something. So yeah, and, just to be clear of what's going on there. Yeah. And here's, here's if you want sort of the, the real life uh, the real life example that can give you a little bit of a reflection of what's going on here. Bitcoin mining involves basically a, a database of computers, a huge giant database of computers. The next time you're using your laptop or you're using your computer and you've been on it for say 30, 40, 50 minutes uh, and you hear the fan running, reach down and touch it. Touch around where the battery is, touch around where the fan is discharging the hot, the hot air and feel how hot it is. Now imagine the heat that, say, a, a small server room generates. Now amplify that by, you know, 200, 300, 400 times in this gigantic, basically, warehouse of computers that are doing the Bitcoin mining. And that's right. exactly, that is the heat that has to be disposed of. Otherwise, um, you know, these com computers will literally just overheat and break and die. And, you know, that's that doesn't work. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, if you want the anecdotal, you know, reason for why this is an environmental concern. Just, you know, touch your laptop the next time you're, you're sitting on the couch, you know, and you'll, you'll see because even the smallest of laptops, I have a tiny microscopic uh, MacBook that I use for, you know, on the go stuff. And let me tell you, this thing gets boiling hot when, you know, when I'm on it for 20 or 30 minutes and the, the back fan is not quite exposed. Which is Very another hot. question is, you know, at what point was this company's permit? I'm sure that when they first got their approval back in 1870 or something, 
it wasn't to mine bitcoins. I mean, when, yeah, when, when did the, I mean? The, so, so the, what exactly? What does their permit allow and not allow? And 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 when did it just say, oh, you want to put in a bunch of things that generate tremendous amounts of heat and dump the excess into the lake? Sure, go ahead. And we actually, uh, I'll link to it after the show's over. But we we had a conversation with Peter Mantius, who's been doing all of this reporting on Greenwich. And this was uh, either in the spring or early summer. And this application is a new application to the DEC or relatively new in the grand scheme of things and was pushed through with with almost no, no pushback at all. <laughs> and it was for them to begin doing this, this uh, Bitcoin mining operation. And just in a matter of a few months, this went from an idea in somebody's head to something that was happening, and the state gave it the green light. And that is a huge question, especially when you're asking the entity that greenlit that in a short amount of time to revoke a permit that has already now been running for months, if not years, you're really just, you're probably not going to see the outcome you want to see. No. Uh, Where can folks hear you Monday through Friday? I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News. That's on Finger Lakes News Radio. If you're listening in Geneva, it's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. If you're listening in Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB. And that's going to do it for us. We will be back next week. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time.